This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Good Saturday morning. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you today. And there's a programming note. I had had Patrick Connor scheduled with the National Federation of Independent Business to give us a legislative update. Today we are putting that off till next week. So uh, you're going to have my normal regular show today. So we'll start out with the weekly wrap-up for the week. And we saw that this abbreviated week, you know, it seems like Christmas was abbreviated week, New Year's abbreviated week, now this week was abbreviated week, four days of trading. Anyway, this abbreviated week closed on a strong note. The S&P 500 is sitting at a fresh record high of 4,839.81. It's up 1.5% for the year. The NASDAQ composite is up 2% the year thanks to this week's gains, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up a half a percent. But gains were largely driven by outperforming mega cap and semiconductor shares. The PHLX Semiconductor Index jumped 8% this week, and the mega cap growth ETF logged in about a 2.5% gain. Nevada was a standout winner in the respect, registering an 8.7% gain. The broader market saw softer price action due to rising market rates as participants recalibrated rate cut expectations due to comments from some Fed officials more strong economic data that is not likely to persuade the Fed to cut rates as soon or as much as the market has hoped. The two-year note jumped 26 basis points, that'd be a quarter of a percent, to 4.41%. The 10-year note yield jumped 20 basis points to 4.15%. We saw Fed Governor Waller, who is an FOMC voter, indicated that the Fed could begin cutting rates this year, but he reiterated that the Fed's estimate for three cuts rather than six cuts that the market expects. The December retail sales report, the housing starts data for December, the weekly initial jobless claims were all stronger than expected, and the preliminary reading of the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index for January was well ahead of estimates, hitting its highest level since July of 21, with year-head inflation expectations accelerating to 2.9% from 3.1%, or decelerating to 2.9% from 3.1%, a rate not seen in just over three years. The implied likelihood of a 25 basis point cut at the March FOMC meeting now sits at 45.4%. That was versus 81% last week. Market participants were also digesting more market earnings results from the likes of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, the Dow Component Travelers, which garnered mixed reviews. Five of the 11 S&P 500 sectors get registered gains this week. The heavily weighted information technology sector was a top gainer by a wide margin, jumping 4.3% thanks to the strength of Nevada and its mega cap components. Meanwhile, the rate-sensitive utilities were down 3.7, real estate down 2.1. Those were the sectors that saw some of the biggest declines. So here, looking at summary of some of the daily action, on Tuesday, the market started the soft week on a soft note, short week on a soft note. The NASDAQ composite logged a two-tenths of 1% decline. The S&P 500 fell four-tenths of 1%. The Dow declined six-tenths of 1%. And small-cap stocks were relative laggards, leading the Russell 2000 to log in a 1.2% loss. We had a jump in market rates that was contributed to the selling activity in the stock market. The price action in Treasuries is partially a reaction to comments from Fed Governor Waller, who indicated that the Fed could begin cutting rates this year, but reiterated the Fed's estimate of three cuts rather than the six cuts that the market expects. There was some hesitation in front of the bulk of the first fourth quarter earnings also contributed to the downbeat price action. Tuesday's economic data was limited to the New York Empire State Manufacturing Index, which doesn't normally move the market that much, but it plunged to minus 43.7 in January from minus 14.5 in December. Then on Wednesday's trade, we featured a negative bias. The market's indices were able to close off their lows, though, thanks to a push higher in the last half hour of trading. The the, uh, late afternoon improvement, which left the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite near their best levels of the day, was largely driven by mega-cap stocks making upside moves. Uh, 
the the mega cap ETF growth, uh, growth ETF was down as much as one and a half percent earlier. It closes best level of the session down with a half a percent loss. An overall negative vibe was relative was related to rising market rates and recalibration of the market's optimistic rate cut view. The two year note yield jumped fourteen basis points to four thirty six. The ten year note jumped four basis points to four eleven. And activity in the Treasury market was partially a reaction to the release of the December retail sales report, which did not go the market's way. That is to say that consumer spending was slightly better than expected in December and not likely to persuade the Fed to cut rates as much or as early as the market had hopes. Still, selling activity was fairly modest, suggesting market participants were simply hesitant to buy at this level rather than anxious to sell. So reviewing Wednesday's economic data, we saw the weekly mortgage bankers applications index at 10.4. A week ago, it was at 9.9. And retail sales were up six-tenths of 1%. December retail sales, if you took out autos, were up four-tenths of 1%. The key takeaway from this report is the consumer spending remained healthy in the final month of 23, which does not strengthen the argument for an imminent cut start to rapid rate cut campaign by the, federal, by the Fed. We saw December export prices down nine-tenths of percent, and export prices, if you took out ag, also down nine-tenths. Import prices were flat, and December's import prices, if you took out oil, were also flat. We saw the December industrial production was up a tenth of one percent. December capacity utilization at 78.6 percent. The key takeaway from this report is that the output remained relatively steady in December, though it followed downward revisions in November's production rate and capacity utilization. We saw November's business inventories down a tenth of 1%, and the January NHAB housing index uh, 44 was, was at 44. On Thursday, the stock market had a solid showing. Mega cap stocks and semiconductor-related names had an outsized impact on the index, performing after Apple was upgraded to a buy from neutral by the Bank of America and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing reported pleasing earnings results. We saw the mega cap growth ETF gain 1.4%. The PHL Semiconductor Index jumped 3.4%. The broader market, however, was showing signs of softness in the early going. The S&P 500 equal weight was down four-tenths of 1% as low of the day, but closed with a half a percent gain, while many stocks rallied in the afternoon trade. Resilience to, er, re, resilience to early selling efforts despite a jump in the 10-year yield and more strong economic data does not bode well for the market's eager rate to cut view acted as its own upside catalyst in the afternoon rally. There was some buying on weakness in the afternoon trade following a soft start of the week. So reviewing Thursday's data, we saw initial weekly job claims come in at 187000 Prior was revised from 202,000 to 203,000 from 202, and the weekly continuing claims at 1.806 million. So the key takeaway from this report is that the labor market is still not showing sudden signs of stress, which could encourage Fed officials to maintain their hawkish rhetoric with respect to rate cut expectations. December housing starts at 1.460 million. December building permits at 1.495 million. And the key takeaway from this report is that the single unit starts decreased 8.6% month over month from a solid rise in November, which is negative for a market that remains constrained by low inventory of existing homes. We also saw January's Philadelphia Fed marketing index down 10.6%. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be right back. New Year savings are on now at DeWard and Bodie with three special ways to save this weekend on Whatcom and Skagit County's best selection of appliances, mattresses, and more. First, now through Sunday, DeWard and Bodie will pay your sales tax on any qualifying mattress purchase. Second, check out today with $0 down and no interest financing up to two full years on select appliances and up to five full years on select mattresses. And third, score savings up to 50% off on specially marked clearance and closeout models throughout all three showrooms. Ready 
to jumpstart your kitchen remodel or upgrade your laundry room? How about starting the new year with better sleep? This weekend is your chance to upgrade and save at DeWard and Bodie on the best in-stock selection of washers and dryers, refrigerators, freezers, dishwashers, ranges, wall ovens, and cooktops, plus mattresses, adjustable bases, box springs, and all things bedding. Shop today with three ways to save your sales tax paid on qualifying mattress purchases, no interest financing, and closeout deals up to 50% off only at DeWard and Bodie. Financing OAC offer qualifications apply. Hi, Marcia Neal with Guided Solutions, here to talk to you about health insurance. Are you looking at retiring soon? Or maybe a change in your employment left you without coverage? Whether it is a plan to go with your Medicare or individual health insurance you need, find out how working with a licensed insurance agent at Guided Solutions can help you navigate the plans available in your area and help you make the right choice for you and your family. Learn more today by calling us at 866 733 5111. Hello folks, this is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham and you might know me as the host of The Aging Hour right here on KGMI. I'm excited to share that you can now listen to The Aging Hour every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. If you have questions about Medicare, Medicaid, long-term care costs, probate, bills, trusts, or anything else that has to do with aging, this is the radio show for you. Studies show that more than 70% of estate plans fail when families need them the most. Join us every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. and we can show you how to set your family up for success. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donnie with you this Saturday morning here live and in studio. We are Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center out by Wilson's Furniture. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number is 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. And another little marketing note. I had a couple of comments from a couple of listeners about my changing my uh, radio show promos. That will be happening next week, so try to make those people happy also. Okay, let's talk about Friday's market. And the market closed this abbreviated week on a strong note on above average volume on the New York Stock Exchange. The S&P 500 closed at a fresh record of 4,839.81 with a 1.2% gain. The Dow Jones Industrial Average logged a 1.1% gain and the NASDAQ closed 1.7% higher. We saw strong mega cap and semiconductor shares were propping up index gains in the early going, while broader market traded more mixed. Semiconductor and mega cap stocks maintained their outperformance, and by, by the close, just about everything was trading higher. Upward momentum in the stock market picked up steam as Treasuries pulled back from its interday high yields. So reviewing Friday's data, <clears throat> we saw December's existing home sales report come in at $3.78 million. With the uh, key takeaway from this report is that the high mortgage rates continue weighing on the overall level of activity, though they have not stopped prices from continuing to climb. And we also saw the January University of Michigan consumer sentiment come in at 70.8.8. And the key takeaway from this report is that the increase in sentiment was accompanied by another drop in year-ahead inflation expectations, which have returned to a level not seen in three years. So looking at the year-to-date up to yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now up a half a percent. The NASDAQ is up 2%. The S&P 500 is up 1.5%. And the Russell 2000 Index is down 4.1%. Well, we like to look at... uh, different areas of the market and different thing, parts of the economy. And this week we want to explore the dynamic of trade between the United States and the rest of the world. The U.S. operates with what we call a significant trade deficit, meaning it imports more than it exports. And some view this negatively and, neg- view this negatively and associate this with being a imp- net importer with economic weakness. This perception may be influenced by the way GDP is calculated. GDP accounting treats exports as positive, 
considering them domestic production, and imports is negative since the production occurred outside of the EU country. However, the trade balance alone does not determine a country's economic strength or influence. To gain a more comprehensive understanding of these things, here we're going to take a look at it. So let's start out talking about the U.S. volume of trade. Rather than fixating solely on the magnitude of the U.S. deficit, we prefer focusing on the overall trade volume. Combining both imports and exports, this approach provides a more comprehensive view of business and consumer interactions across and beyond U.S. borders. An increase in both exports and, in, exports and imports <coughs> signifies a flourishing and robust economy. Unfortunately, the current... <coughs> Excuse me. Unfortunately, the the current data reveal a marginal growth of only two tenths of one percent in total trade compared to a year ago. Exports have seen a modest uptick of four tenths of one percent, while imports have increased a tenth of one percent. These figures align with our most recent forecast of a recession coming into the U.S. So let's talk about the largest exporters to the United States. We've seen a shift occurring in U.S. trade landscape in 2023. Mexico surpassed China as the largest exporter to the U.S. after approximately 15 years of China holding that position. The total volume imports from China in the U.S. over the last 12 months has declined by 21.5% compared to a previous 12 months, while imports from Mexico have experienced a 5.1% increase during the same period. Looking ahead... There's a possibility that in 2024, China could drop to third place, trading behind Canada. This would mark the first time that China was in third place since 2002. (coughs) And let's also take a look at the um, exchange of petroleum products in the U.S., which is a big influencer on all this. After uh, an often overlooked area of of, uh, monthly trade data is the exchange of petroleum products, imports and exports alike. Just two decades ago, imports of petroleum products drove to the exports, um, equally (coughs) reaching 12 to 15 times the size. At this time, concerns rose that with speculating the U.S. had reached peak oil, becoming increasingly dependent on foreign sources. However, the landscape has changed in remarkable transformation with the advent of fracking. In a complete reversal, the United States has emerged as a net exporter of petroleum products for 21 consecutive months. So a little peak at what's happening out there with trade. And let's look at uh, maybe a little thought here about what's going on in the market and Maybe where the money is positioned. Maybe a little bit about hiding in plain sight. We find that many def- investors default to choosing between large cap stocks or small cap cousins. However, there is also a third choice that exists. In our opinion, that may be more appealing to many people, and that's your mid cap. So let's talk about this. Large cap stocks are companies that have got over $10 billion in total cap market cap. The small cap stocks are less than $2 billion. That means your mid-cap stocks are those companies between 2 and $10 billion. And according to Morningstar data, the U.S. investor exposure to mid-cap stocks is only about half of that of corresponding market weight, indicating that it's an underappreciated area of the market. Moreover, the average number of sell-side analysts covering mid-cap stocks is approximately half the number of large-cap stocks. That means that the number of analysts that are covering those stocks is, is less than half of what you see on mid-cap or large-cap. That's one reason you don't see as much information. And that is potentially leading to greater inefficiency and opportunity for more alpha, in our view. We're also seeing that mid-cap, stock, mid-cap stocks appear inexpensive on an absolute relative basis, given the S&P 500 mid-cap 400 index is trading 13% below its 20-year average P.E. valuation, while the large-cap S&P 500 index is trading 21% above its 20-year average as of December of 23. And then we're also seeing that U.S. mid-cap companies have outperformed both large and mid-caps over the last large and small caps 
over the last 30 years, ending in December of 23. And we believe this may be because mid-cap stocks often have the capacity for further growth by small caps, but have survived the perils of infancy. Typically, they have more seasoned management teams, they have proven business models, and they have access to capital like larger companies. In this way, mid-caps may offer the best of both the small and large-cap worlds. Something to think about when we're out there taking a look at where we want to position our portfolios. Going to take a quick break here. Dick Donahue with you with it. With Wealth Wake Up Live, we'll be right back. There's something magical in the air. Melt away the winter blues this January with a share of $50,000 in prizes. Join the fun every Friday with hourly hot seat drawings from 4 to 8 p.m. It might be cold outside, but these seats are blazing hot. You know what they say, snow time like the present for a little snow money. The results are in, and you voted us best casino and best stake in the Northwest. Thank you all for your support. Silver Reef Casino Resort, located off I-5 exit 260. We've got that. What does your dream getaway have? Luxury hotel rooms, elegant suites, and relaxing spa? We've got that. World-class Wine Spectator Award-winning steakhouse? We've got that. Washington's premier golf destination? We've got that. How about the newest slots, table games, and exciting promotions? Oh, yeah, we've got those, too. Visit Silver Reef Casino Resort and hit the getaway jackpot. Silver Reef Casino Resort, located off I-5, exit 260. We've got that. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Neater House of Luxury in Bellingham. Did you know that the Volunteer Center of Whatcom County helps mobilize volunteers to help transform our community? If you're a community member looking to make a difference, contact the Volunteer Center of Whatcom County, a program of the Opportunity Council. Volunteers help extend the resources and successes of hundreds of local nonprofits in Bellingham and the county. You can make a difference. Contact the Volunteer Center of Whatcom County today. Learn more at oppco.org. That's oppco.org. Dedicated to service, brought to you by Neater House of Luxury. Go see why they were voted best jewelry store in the Northwest. You'll find a beautiful selection of GIA certified and lab-grown diamonds, plus unique custom designs with an in-house jeweler. Find them at 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's Back Patio. I'm Dr. Miller, a dentist and a volunteer for Dental Lifeline Network. DLN is a nonprofit that has helped me literally change the lives of people in my community through the Donated Dental Services Program. DLN asks dentists to volunteer to see just one of the many patients in need each year. If you're a dentist or know a dentist, please share this information. Like me, they can make a real difference in someone's life. DLN makes it easy. Go to willyouseeone.org to learn more. That's willyouseeone.org. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. No gimmicks, just the highest quality systems, 0% interest financing, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Rely on West Mechanical Heating, Air Conditioning, and Electrical. Contact them today at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and mybellinghamnow.com. CBS News Brief. Tens of millions are dealing with some of the coldest weather so far this season. And Weather Channel meteorologist Kelly Cass tells us rain is the story out west. The rain eventually will win out as the warmer temperatures will win out. We'll have a southerly wind over the next several days. That brings up our temperatures finally getting above freezing for the first time for so many of us. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is not endorsing his former governor for the GOP presidential nomination. Instead, though... We need a president who will close our southern border today. We need Donald Trump. A grand jury will investigate how police handled the Uvalde school shooting. Red Cross lost his son in the attack. Yeah, I don't trust it yet, but I want them to prove me wrong, you know. I want them, the DA, to do what's right. I want this community to do what's right. CBS News Brief. I'm Stacy Lynn. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. 
Saw an interesting commentary come out this week that I thought I should would share with you. Uh, comes from David Kelly. Uh, David Kelly is a highly respected uh, economic strategist here in the U.S., and he's the chief global strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And I think that uh, this is something worth thinking about here. And the question that he raised in this uh, analysis was, will rising federal debt force rates higher? Basically, he said that no one in 23 had a sales year that came anywhere close to what Janet Yellen and her minions over at the Treasury Department. Last year, they achieved net sales of Treasury debt of $1.86 trillion, the second highest total ever. This allowed them to not only finance a massive federal budget deficit, but also to stash an additional $360 billion into their checking account at the Fed. Moreover, they did this in face of still high inflation. The rising expense of foreign conflicts, threats of government shutdown and default, are being put on ratings agencies' down, downgrade watch list. In addition, despite aggressive Fed tightening and a lot of volatility during the year, they were able to finance their long-term debt at essentially the same rates at the end of the year as at the start. And remarkably, they achieved all of this while their biggest customer was redeeming their bonds at a pace that would rival the returns line at Costco the day after Christmas. Indeed, their net sales to the U.S. and international investors outside of the Federal Reserve amounted to $2.56 trillion. That was up 63% from a year earlier and 22% higher than the previous record set in the pandemic year of 2020. But we have rising debt worries and their offsets. All of this, of course, says more about the appetite for global investors for U.S. Treasuries than it does about the marketing skill of the Treasury Department. And this demand should, to some extent, calm fears that rising federal debt is soon going to lead to surging long-term interest rates. Clearly, there are reasons for concern about rising federal debt. In their 10-year projections last May, the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, estimated that annual deficits would climb from $1.4 trillion in fiscal 22 to $2.2 trillion in fiscal 2033 with the debt-to-GDP ratio rising from 97% to a record of 119% over the same period. Importantly, however, these forecasts include significant underestimate of the 2023 budget deficit. Also, by convention, they assumed that the 2017 tax cuts would not be extended beyond 2025. But if we adjust these forecasts for the part of the CBO forecast error that is likely to persist, and we assume that 2017 tax cuts are, in fact, extended, the math gets even more worrying. The federal debt in the hands of the public is on track to reach $50 trillion by 2033, 127% of GDP. However, even on this sobering path, there are important offsets that can limit any increase in long-term interest rates, at least in the near term. First, even if the economy continues to grow over the next few years, the Federal Reserve will have to wrap up its quantitative tightening program in order to allow its ample reserves regime to continue to operate. Since the Fed is currently reducing its Treasury holdings by up to $720 billion per year, this would significantly reduce the government's need to borrow from other investors. If the economy were to fall into a recession, the Fed might resume its quantitative easing program, further reducing Treasury's need to borrow in the open market, although a recession would obviously strain the budget in other ways. Second, primarily because of the Fed tightening, net interest costs to the federal government have soared by from $350 billion in fiscal 2021 to $660 billion in fiscal 23. That is likely to close at $900 billion this year. Again, net interest, that's net interest. That's the amount of interest government's paying on the debt. It was $360 billion in 2021, $660 billion in 23, expected to be $900 billion this year. That's just the interest that the government's paying on its debt. Aggressive Fed rate cuts in the face of recession or even persistently low inflation could reduce these costs substantially. Third, the U.S. Treasury raises money in a global market on the government bonds. 
even as the United States faces a rising debt to GDP rates in the years ahead, other governments may be more frugal and thus reduce the strain on markets from the U.S. borrowing. In particular, in its October 23 World Global Economic Outlook, the International Monetary Fund estimated that the net government debt of the Eurozone, the United Kingdom, and Japan would all fall as a percentage of GDP between 2023 and 2028. So the cost is of not fixing this debt, the, the debt, all of this reduces the risk for long-term interest rates will spike higher because the federal government's borrowing needs. However, it's hardly a cause for celebration or complacency. The reality is that all of this rests on the assumption of attaining and maintaining low inflation and a strong dollar. Without low inflation, the Federal Reserve will likely uh, keep QT going, quantity tightening going uh, for longer and resist calls for reduction in short-term interest rates. If the dollar were to fall sharply, both the U.S. and international investors would likely demand a premium to invest in U.S. securities rather than accepting a discount. So the problem is the low inflation achieved between 2000 and the 1980s, the start of the decade was facilitated in part by rising inequality, which tended to boost the demand for fiscal assets and homes and limit the demand for basic goods and services. The strong dollar, so important to global demand of our stocks and bonds, has cost millions of manufacturing jobs, has left the United States with a permanent trade deficit, adding annually to our foreign obligations. It's a sad predicament when our ability to finance our government debt hinges on willingness to maintain yawning inequality today and reduce our prospective standard of living in years to come. Moreover, to state the obvious, Chronically high budget deficits reduce our ability to respond to geopolitical pressure issues, domestic disasters, and recessions. So let's look at the investment implications of what's happening here. Rising interest payments have been the biggest reason for a sharp increase in the budget deficit recently. However, any attempt to reduce the deficit in the long run would have to come from reducing the primary deficit, that is the gap between non-interest and spending and reserve revenues. This, in turn, requires voters to be willing to elect politicians who promise to do unpopular things. The usual whipping boy of those who pretend to be deficit talks is discretionary, non-defense spending. However, this broad basket of government services only accounts for about 15% of federal spending last year. Indeed, even a cursory glance at the federal finances makes it clear then any attempt to achieve balance will have to be rein in spending on defense, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, while also raising taxes. There is no evidence that voters are ready for this, and so most likely the deficit and the debt will continue to worsen, gradually adding to the underlying level of real interest rates. For investors, this suggests three broad implications. First, the debt-to-GDP ratio will continue to rise for many years to come. However, that should be merely put, put some upward pressure on long-term interest rates. There is no reason to believe that this is about to trigger a short-term financial crisis. Second, in the medium term, budgetary pressure will likely require some increase in taxes and some cuts in spending. Taxes will likely be raised, to the, raised on the rich, while spending growth will likely be curtailed for older Americans. If you are richer and older, than average, the government will likely tax you more and spend on, on you less, making it even more important that you build a bigger private nest egg. And finally, as with any risk, it's important to consider how to mitigate it. Surging levels of government debt combined with a high exchange rate are more of a problem in the United States than, in, for example, in the Eurozone. For those worried about a U.S. debt meltdown, the most obvious way to reduce risk is to invest more around the world. This should be a good protection if someday the sales force of the U.S. Treasury Department finds themselves with a product that they cannot sell at any reasonable price. Interesting thoughts. Not fun, actually, if you sit down and think about the depth of it. Uh, also, let's take, let's see, let's talk about tax blunders that costing you cash, top mistakes to avoid. Well, one of those is don't let your 1099 slip through the cracks. You need to track your IRA bases like a pro. You need to unlock hidden tax breaks. 
You need to avoid common filing fiascos for a bigger refund. And, of course, filing our taxes can be complicated with many opportunities to make yet invertedly yet costly errors. 90 to 95% of tax returns have no issues. Reviewing returns carefully each year can uncover uh, overlooked mistakes or missed tax-saving opportunities. So here are some of the most frequent tax return errors. Number one is missing income. One of the most common mistakes is failing to report 1099 income from various sources. This includes forgetting your 1099-R forms for retirement plan distributions or Social Security benefits. 1099s from brokerage accounts, especially if you switch firms from mid-year. Your 1099 miscellaneous forms for society income and activities like hard money lending. Income for qualified charitable distributions. Thirdly, collecting all of your 1099s and double-checking on any missing documents can also help avoid leaving out taxable income. So let's talk about incorrect basis tracking. If you have a non-deductible contribution to IRAs over the years, keeping account records for your basis is essential. Filing a Form 10 or filing a Form 8606 annually means your basis likely won't be applied correctly. Uh, so you need to fail, failing to file a form. You need to file this 8606 so that you can correctly track what your basis is in your IRAs. This results, it could result in overpaying taxes with should have been non-taxable distribution. So it's important you file that 8606 every year that you make an IRA contribution. You also, uh, miscalculating tax payments, errors like missing deductions or income can throw off the accuracy of an estimated quarterly payments calculated by our CPAs. It pays to double check the math, especially if your income situation has changed recently. Filing an extension provides more time to review and avoid these rush mistakes. And then also missing credits and deductions. You have valuable tax breaks like the health savings accounts, deductions, savers credit, qualified business income deduction often get overlooked. Just taking extra time to review your return situation for potential missed opportunities can unlock substantial tax savings year after year. So catching even small tax return errors and emissions can put thousands of dollars back into your pocket over time. Consider having a set of eyes review your return annually, and tax savings are likely worth the effort. So Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be right back. Cash in on nostalgia. Barron's historic payback program is back and bigger than ever. Heating, cooling, and more. Save on everything Barron installs. Get $100 towards your new purchase for each year of your equipment's age. That's right. The older the equipment, the more you'll save. So many things get better with age. Unfortunately, your HVAC system isn't one of them. Until now. During Barron's payback program, earn up to $6,000 when you upgrade to a high-efficiency heat pump. Spoiler alert, two lucky customers win free installations, including the customer with the oldest furnace. There's more. The first 10 customer installations snag a $500 Costco shop card. The next four to get a $200 shop card. That's 50 happy folks. Good things come to those who wait, but don't wait too long. Call today. Barron's payback program is happening now through January 31st. Barron, your full-service HVAC electrical and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. No purchase necessary. Visit BarronHeating.com for details. If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renter's and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Not available in all states. It's a mystery where Old Spice finds its amazing scents like Himalayan sea salt, but I'm thrilled they have because no other body wash exfoliates and moisturizes 24-7 like Old Spice Gentleman's Himalayan sea salt body wash. Now, if only there was a mountain range separating the Indian subcontinent from the Tibetan plateau where I could hide my Old Spice and keep my family from stealing it, my impossibly smooth skin will finally be safe. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA 
back to Welcome Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. If you've got questions for me, you can always give me a call, 360-733-1200. You know, this time of year, we run into a lot of clients and prospects that we're talking to, and they want to fund an IRA. They've made too much money. Uh, I know what their options are. And one of the options that, we're, that we've used with a lot of our clients is what we call a backdoor Roth. But there are some mistakes that you need to avoid in doing so. The so-called backboard Roth is a powerful tool. It allows higher income taxpayers to fund both uh, Roth individual retirement accounts indirectly from income when income limitations would otherwise prevent them from contributing to a Roth. On the surface, the strategy seems simple enough. Fund a traditional IRA, convert those funds to a Roth, However, there are some rules that must be followed and complications that must be considered when you're considering executing a backdoor Roth strategy. And while the internal revenue service blessed the strategy as a legitimate option when the, when the 2017 uh, tax reforms were ex- enacted, you still can get in trouble if you don't pay close attention to the rules of the game. So let's talk about the basics, basically, of a backdoor Roth strategy. Under current law, income restrictions prohibit high-income taxpayers from contributing directly to a Roth account. Only those that earn less than or only those who earn less than two hundred forty thousand joint or one hundred sixty-one thousand single in two thousand twenty-four can contribute directly to a Roth IRA. So, if your earnings are over two hundred forty thousand filing jointly or one hundred sixty-one thousand, you cannot directly fund a Roth IRA. So the ability to fund a Roth starts to phase out with, with your earnings as little as 146000 single and 230000 So over two you're, you you can't do it, but it phases out. Basically, you lose about 10% of what you can deduct between 230 and 240 Same thing as single. You lose about 10% of it between 146 and one, uh, uh, 161 We'll talk about that in more detail personally. Roth conversions, however, are not subject to an annual income limit. In other words, taxpayers can't, whose income is greater than the annual limits are still permitted to execute a backdoor strategy to a fund a Roth via a series of transactions generating current income tax liability in the process. You can access this backdoor by first contributing to a traditional IRA. Then you subsequently execute what we call a Roth conversion, paying taxes on the amounts converted. This allows the higher income to create a source of tax-free income in the future. So basically what we're saying there is even if you're over those, over those income limits, you can, conduct, you can contribute money to a non-deductible IRA. So that means you're paying tax on that contribution, but then immediately turn around and, con- and convert that to a Roth. But you need to remember that, the, that the, the you or your spouse – must have earned income in this in the year in order to contribute to the traditional IRA in the first place. So what that means, you have to have an income. You can't go out there and say, well, I got my pension, I got my Social Security. That does not allow you to fund an IRA or convert, do a conversion. You should also be advised for those that have not reached age 59 and a half, that we have a five-year waiting period that will apply before you're entitled to access the converted Roth funds without a penalty. So again, you have five years that you have to wait before you can take money out of a Roth IRA. Otherwise, you're subject to some penalties. You also need to be aware of the pro rata rule. The pro rata rule is a common trap that you can fall into when you're executing Roth conversions to fund a backdoor Roth. The pro rata rule applies if you uh, do not convert all the funds if you have traditional SZEP or simple IRAs at one time, the traditional IRA contains both deductible and non-deductible contributions. What we're saying is if you have a regular IRA, you get caught up in what we call pro rata. You can't just put money into a new non-deductible IRA and convert it. You also have to consider any money that you might have in other IRAs in the, that you've contributed to in the past. So you have to remember that, that for high-income earners, IRAs to contain, could contain both deductible and non-deductible contributions because of the relatively low pre-tax IRA contribution limit of $7,000 this year. Non-deductible contributions can also be lower the overall uh, tax associated with Roth conversion used to, to convert to the back door. So if you have non-deductible uh, contributions in that IRA, 
you can convert, but you have to do it again on a pro rata basis. So that means that if you had, say, 50% that would had, it was after-tax money and 50% that was pre-tax money, basically you wind up having to pro rata when you do that conversion. The pro rata rule applies to the proportion of pre-tax and after-tax contributions in the entire IRA paid by, uh, pool by considering uh, when determining how the backdoor Roth contributions are taxed, i.e. you can't choose just to convert the after-tax amount to avoid the tax on the conversion if you're leaving the pre-tax contributions in the traditional IRA. Again, it's a pro rata rule. Each dollar that is contributed must contain a percentage of the tax-free and the taxable contributions. That percentage is based on the ratio of taxable to non-taxable contributions in the account as a whole. That said, if you also participate in an employer-sponsored 401k or another retirement plan, it may be possible for you to roll over the pre-tax contributions in that 401k, leaving only non-deductible contributions in the IRA. So that's also a possibility. Now let's talk a little bit about the reporting and technical rules. Uh, you should be reminded to keep good records. Uh, remember to file your appropriate tax forms. For example, taxpayers must report to the IRS when they take non-deductible contributions to a traditional IRA. That, again, that I mentioned earlier, we're talking about the Form 8606. You need to file that 8606 each year with your tax return. That keeps track of those non-deductible contributions. So later on, when you go to take them out, you get, you get to take that money out and not pay tax on it again. But when you convert the funds to a Roth, they'll receive that Form 1099-R the following year. You have till Form 5498 is used to report the conversion itself. When you file a tax return, another Form 8606 must be completed to show how the pro rata rule applied. So in conclusion, it is important to remember that it's your responsibility to keep track of the non-deductible contributions that made to your IRA. Failure to maintain proper documentation and comply with reporting obligations can lead to penalties and negate some of the significant benefits of the backdoor Roth strategy. <clears throat> but backdoor Roths are kind of slick because you find people with those higher income limits depending on – in fact, in many cases I've found clients who do not have uh, additional IRAs. That Basically, their retirement plan, their 401ks, their 403bs and stuff are their primary retirement account. That means those people do not have to consider that money in doing the Roth conversion. And so they go ahead and contribute on a non-deductible basis to an IRA, then turn right around and do that conversion to that Roth IRA. So it is something to keep in mind. Okay. Well, we also saw that um, Goldman Sachs came out with a survey this year, just recently, that shows that geopolitics is the biggest risk in 2024. They're saying that it's by far the biggest risk to markets and the global economy. Inflation is longer no longer viewed as such a major threat, according to a survey by Goldman Sachs. Some 54% of the respondents picked geopolitics as the top risk in the survey, conducted as part of the bank's annual global strategy conference in London this month. The U.S. election, which will be held November 5th, came in second place at 17%. <coughs> the results underscore a major shift in global market, market sentiment and inflation, the main bugbear in recent years, slows back towards central banks' targets. And while resurgence remains a threat, the Goldman survey shows that some investors are increasingly concerned about how to position should wars in Europe and the Middle East spread with the tensions rising between China and Taiwan. We saw geopolitical and political events that represent a risk to portfolios they are particularly difficult to position for. Timing and market impact tend to be hard to anticipate. So allocations, for example, using some different allocations can help for different types of commodities, especially oil, gold, Swiss franc, among other currencies that have historically been reliable diversifiers in periods of prolonged geopolitical uncertainty. Analysts at Goldman show that Swiss franc has generally served as a better hedge against such risks than the yen, which tends to be more sensitive to interest rate moves. Investors are also bracing for the return of Donald Trump, who's a step closer to securing the Republican nomination with his win in the Iowa caucuses. A Trump presidency could bring sharp policy reversals in 2025. That could include things like uh, steep import tariffs and also a partial exit from 
or potential exit from NATO. So to be sure, any uptick in global turbulence can also knock uh, have a knock-on effect on inflation, potentially reversing any slowdown. So biggest concern right now could impact the markets. According to this study, 54% of respondents said that geopolitics are their biggest concern. Well, I'm not going to continue here. I do see a couple things out here. I saw this week where um, cold weather reveals that wind's vulnerabilities and the need to empower energy. We saw saw conservation notices coming out from Puget Sound Energy, Cascade Natural Gas this this last week because of demand on the energy grid was uh, far higher than the production. They found that the... uh, uh, alternatives that they depended on in this case in wind and, and, and uh, solar, for example, were not all options that were available, were not there. Uh, found that hydropower basically made up that difference. Just want to point that out. Hydropower made up that difference. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And if you got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks and have a great week. on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.